Welcome back and thank you for joining us for episode 5 of Freud in Focus, a new podcast from the Freud Museum London, hosted by Jamie Ruiz and me, Tom DeRose, and produced by Carolina Heller. Jamie is away this week, but I'm delighted to welcome to the programme the Freud Museum's Education and Outreach Manager, Emilia Rajkowska. In this episode, Emilia is going to help us to explore some of the challenges that the COVID-19 pandemic has posed to our collective mental health, and also how the psychoanalytic community has responded to these challenges. Emilia, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. So before we dive into current day concerns, I'd like to draw an historical parallel. In this series, we've been discussing Freud's seminal work, Beyond the Pleasure Principle, which was published, as you'll remember, in 1920. But I'm going to take us back a couple of years to 1918 and the Fifth International Psychoanalytical Congress held in Budapest. The Congress itself contained a symposium on war neurosis, part of the complex of ideas that triggered the writing of Beyond the Pleasure Principle. But the text that I'd like to draw our attention to at this stage is Freud's famous speech to the analysts that were gathered at the Congress, which became known as the Budapest Address. In this address, Freud offers a rallying cry to society, a plea that mental health treatment should be available for all, that treatment should be free to individuals and state-funded, and that they should be founded on psychoanalytic principles. Now, we'll read a passage from the address later on, but it's quite a remarkable document, really when we consider that the NHS in England was not founded until after the Second World War in 1948. Such an attitude really throws into question those charges of elitism which have dogged the practice of psychoanalysis since its very inception. Emilia, we have an excellent precedent here, do we not, for psychoanalysis as an enterprise that involves social engagement particularly in times of collective trauma and suffering. Can we see a similar response from institutions and programmes today in the light of COVID-19? Absolutely, Tom. Many parallels may be drawn here. Freud's famous Budapest Address marks the beginning of psychoanalytic social engagement and advocacy. Free treatment centres were soon opened in seven European countries where analysis was offered to a wider range of people whom it wouldn't have previously reached, such as shell-shocked soldiers, troubled children, farmers and factory workers, teachers, domestic servants, people who were disabled or unemployed, and many, many others. And since then, there has been a strong tradition among analysts to dedicate a proportion of their time to working in the community, or offering flexible, low-fee treatment. But what characterised those particular two decades between the wars was also the development of new specialist community interventions and contributions to other fields, especially education, championed by Anna Freud, social work, nursing and family law. 
Analysts practicing at the time initiated short-term treatments and crisis intervention, a kind of simplified analysis in the spirit of analysis proper, as they would say. Freud's speech indicated a bold new direction and energized the gathering, resonating with the wider social efforts to rebuild Europe after the war. This spirit has been very much alive during the current pandemic too, and just like then, activities focused on both widening access to free treatment and on new areas of work in the community. Psychoanalytic organizations responded very promptly and many opened free therapy lines, which have been helping thousands of people around the world. In Britain, a coalition for psychoanalysis in the NHS has been formed, bringing together a variety of services dedicated to supporting public health. Analytically trained clinicians have been working with frontline medical staff and key workers, providing trauma interventions, reflective group practice for GPs and nurses, consultations for clinical management teams, services for the most vulnerable, including ethnic minorities, people with learning disabilities, care home residents, or supporting bereaved families of NHS staff. In this global emergency, they have created containing spaces for clear thinking, which allowed to work through some of the overwhelming emotions and states. Anything we experience always resonates with something else already in us and comes into play with our pre-existing ways of feeling, seeing the world and relating to others. Psychoanalysis gives words to most unbearable experiences and offers a unique way of embracing and sorting through complexity or, as Freud would say, supplies the thread that leads us out of the labyrinth of our own unconscious. Throughout the pandemic, psychoanalysis has also served as a vital tool for interpreting the crisis at various levels. In a series of short videos accompanying the museum's upcoming exhibition, our brilliant guests offer fascinating insights into the vibrant and diverse contemporary psychoanalytic work and thinking. Joe Stably shares first-hand accounts of specialist trauma interventions, Mark Blagrove and Julia Lockhart reveal how the pandemic affected our dreams. Beverly Stout discusses the unprecedented anti-racism upheavals, and Brett Carr brings attention to the life lessons from Freud's own experience of multiple pandemics. In her warming opening, Virginia Unger, the president of the International Psychoanalytical Association, says that Psychoanalysis is a precious tool and that the idea is not to keep the tool in a crystal box. And to be honest, Tom, I can't think of better words to reflect the now century-long and ever so strong a spirit of psychoanalytic community engagement. It's very interesting that you mentioned the idea of the coalition here, Amelia, and that psychoanalysis cannot afford to operate in splendid isolation or indeed, in a crystal box. The spirit of the law, rather than the letter of the law, seems to be an appropriate analogy here. On that theme, I'd like to read the final paragraph of the Budapest Address. Just to give some context, Freud had begun his conclusion 
by imagining a future time in which the conscience of society will awake and that mental health treatment will be free and universally available. He then writes the following, and I am reading from page 167 of volume 17 of the Standard Edition. We shall then be faced by the task of adapting our technique to the new conditions. I have no doubt that the validity of our psychological assumptions will make its impression on the uneducated too, but we shall need to look for the simplest and most easily intelligible ways of expressing our theoretical doctrines. We shall probably discover that the poor are even less ready to part with their neuroses than the rich, because the hard life that awaits them if they recover offers them no attraction, and illness gives them one more claim to social help. Often, perhaps, we may only be able to achieve anything by combining mental assistance with some material support, in the manner of the Emperor Joseph. It is very probable, too, that the large-scale application of our therapy will compel us to alloy the pure gold of analysis freely with the copper of direct suggestion. And hypnotic influence, too, might find a place in it again, as it has in the treatment of war neuroses. But whatever form this psychotherapy for the people may take, whatever the elements out of which it is compounded, its most effective and most important ingredients will assuredly remain those borrowed from strict and untendentious psychoanalysis. So a rallying cry mixed with a reservation, then. I wonder, Amelia, if you could help us think about how this might look in our current environment. What would represent the copper of direct suggestion today? Can you give us a sense of what effective contemporary practice might look like? Practices that manage to combine different elements of treatment whilst, as Freud demanded, borrowing its most important ingredients from strict and untendentious psychoanalysis. The Budapest Congress was the first psychoanalytic gathering after the long years of the war and Freud's concern for the survival of his enterprise is increasingly visible. Psychoanalysis has often gravitated between the status of a discovery of certain psychic phenomena and of that of an invention of a particular form of treatment. But scientific discoveries can't be patented. One might be credited with having made them, but they belong to humanity. And interestingly, most of the disagreements within the psychoanalytic community haven't focused on the correctness of Freud's original pronouncements or discoveries, but on ways of licensing the clinical invention and the question what is still psychoanalysis and what is not. The Budapest speech is Freud's manifesto for open-mindedness as a carefully chosen way forward, partly necessitated by the circumstances and partly a result of his own reflections and technique. He anticipates, indeed, encourages developments, 
Leith is saying that agreement on all issues is not even desirable. To protect the essence of the approach, he later proposes five psychoanalytic prerequisites, as he calls them, the unconscious, resistance, repression, the importance of sexuality and the Oedipus complex. We know that Freud's own clinical technique was quite flexible and pragmatic, often at odds with his somewhat stricter official advice. But he also openly recognised that the various conditions cannot all be dealt with by the same analytic technique. Analysts after him filled certain gaps in his theory and practice by developing ways of working with a wider range of issues, including narcissism or psychosis, or offering treatment to children and older people. Capturing one's unconscious at work is a very powerful experience, and Freud clearly finds something superior, gold-like, about this particular way of gaining insight through unrushed analysis and interpretation of transference and free associations. His contemporaries would sometimes brand other talking cures violent therapies, as those tried to impose something on the patient through the copper of suggestion, uh, for example, a piece of advice or a coping strategy, a new perspective, while psychoanalysis, as Freud famously said, does not seek to add or introduce anything new, but to take away something, to bring out something. Freud admits that psychoanalysis too makes use of suggestion, but he clarifies that it does so to lead the treatment rather than the patient in a certain way. For example, by focusing attention on particular subjects, but not to determine the results. Anna Freud would use suggestion to establish a trusting relationship between herself and her child patients before embarking on actual analytic work. Today, most psychotherapists in general practice in more eclectic ways. Freud would see his patients six times a week and insisted that a good analysis takes at least a year and often more. Today, intense analysis takes place four or five times a week and often for years. Psychoanalytic and psychodynamic psychotherapies typically offer up to three sessions a week and might also be open-ended. And the shorter-term psychodynamic therapies, offered both privately and on the NHS, typically involve between 16 and 24 weekly sessions. The shorter time frame means that therapy is typically more focused on particular issues or areas of material, while consistently inviting free associations. The clinician takes on a more active role in the process, and there's typically a greater emphasis on the here and now, the analysis of the transference relationship. The past decades have witnessed the rapid growth of evidence-based psychodynamic practice, Organisations such as the Association for Psychoanalytic Psychotherapy in the NHS and Public Health navigate the complex area of psychotherapy research and commissioning with enormous intelligence, capturing and demonstrating the unique, lasting effects of analytic interventions. Their tireless efforts 
to challenge some of the basic notions at the heart of the current debates and offer alternative frameworks are vital contemporary initiatives aiming to bring analytic treatment and thinking closer to greater numbers of people. Amelia, I'd, I'd like to, to think for a moment about the psychoanalytic notion of ambivalence, which is a constant theme throughout Freud's work. In Civilization and its Discontents, Freud brings this notion of ambivalence to bear on our relationship to technology. Technological advances, he says, are based on the fulfilment of mainly fairy tale like wishes. Despite the fact that technology has raised us almost to a godlike level, we are, he suggests, like prosthetic gods who put on their various devices, which act as auxiliary organs, but are left uneasy. We're not happy in our new godlike character. Freud was writing here in 1930, describing such technologies as the telescope, ships, aircraft, cameras and gramophones, etc. But of course, we have our own technologies today that have really come to the fore during the pandemic. Most psychotherapy is now taking place on Zoom, or indeed over the telephone. Now these communication technologies have proved immensely valuable to the continuation of treatment, but have they also left us feeling uneasy? How do virtual sessions compare to physical sessions? Uneasiness is indeed the word that often comes up here, Tom. Some had already practiced online therapy before, but for the vast majority of both patients and clinicians, it has been an entirely new, complex and uncanny experience, and most think of it as a forced experiment. While some common impressions emerge, it would be too early to draw conclusions. The experiment is ongoing, and our attitudes are also still evolving. While some found themselves unable to continue in this form and suspended their practice, most tried to continue, and great many people tried psychotherapy for the first time. There has been a considerable diversity with regard to the actual ways of practicing Bashley. Some people opted for Zoom or a similar app, with the camera either on or off. Others preferred to use the telephone. There are also those who have asked patients to position their devices in a way that would resemble the classical couch and chair scenario. Others would sit in their usual chair, facing an empty couch with the patient on the phone. To most, the change in setting amounted to a loss of something dear and familiar, and as such, activated the process of mourning. A lot of patients bring attention to the importance of the time before and after each session, the rituals they had developed around it, the journey to, and especially back from the analyst's office, all suddenly lost. Many clinicians mentioned the experience of stretching the use of language. 
finding unusually rich, precise ways of conveying ideas, as if to compensate for the potentially unreliable connection and the lack of the usual bodily presence. The sense of uneasiness also resonates with uncertainty about the future of the clinical practice. After all, it is different to offer the online option under objectively extreme circumstances and to choose to offer it after the pandemic. Concerns about the progressive sense of disembodiment and strong influence of digital cultures in the consulting room certainly predate COVID. But what lays at the heart of the debate, Tom, is also another brutal question. The availability of psychoanalysis and therapy in general. At the moment, access to analytic practice is limited to larger metropolitan areas in the countries where the discipline is well established. Even in the UK, it is not exactly easy to find an analyst outside of Greater London. As a discipline, psychoanalysis relied on surpassing physical distance from its very beginning. Freud's famous formative self-analysis largely relied on the extensive exchange of letters with his friend at the time, Wilhelm Vlies, who lived in a different city. And for decades, analysts shared ideas on offered supervision using letters. They will now passionately debate the future of online work. Many have shared reflections about their possible over-dependence on the ritualized aspects of the setting. Throughout its history, psychoanalysis has been practiced in all settings and circumstances. After the First World War, when heating was difficult to afford, Freud carried on with his winter coat on and his patients would wrap themselves in blankets. In his sacred study in London, witnessed further pragmatism in 1960s, when the Fortada baby, W. Ernest Freud, already a practicing analyst living nearby, one day had a leak damage in his office. Without a blink, his aunt Anna Freud invited him to resume his practice at Mersfield Gardens in the consulting room of his grandpa Sigmund. To the best of our knowledge, this makes him the only person to see patients there after Freud. In the already uncanny world of radical uncertainty, the experience of online therapy is, at its core, a digital version of the Fortada game. At the touch of a finger, as if that's a kind of magic, the analyst and the patient are sent far away and then brought back again, up close. The image on the screen like the poorly heated consulting room a hundred years ago, might become frozen. Today, patients might not be needing coats or blankets to protect themselves from the cold, but may need to sit in a car or on a park bench, unable to speak openly in the domestic spaces shared with others. So, when everything is changing, when a simple how are you might seem necessary, while the couch might seem obsolete. The real question is, what is the most important aspect of the setting? And many now wonder if it might in fact be the theory and their own analytic attitude. The pandemic has clearly changed so much about our lives, how we communicate, how we interact, 
the everyday rituals which structure and give meaning to our lives. Collectively, we've been faced with whole-scale uncertainty. This phrase, the new normal, is banded around so often, isn't it? To conclude, I wonder, Amelia, if you could offer us a few thoughts on the idea of uncertainty. How do we cope with uncertainty? Are there any lessons that Freudian psychoanalysis can teach us in order to help us work through these challenges? The pandemic immersed us in what might be called radical uncertainty, bringing in an ever-present death threat. At the same time, it deprived us of the things that normally help us ward off survival anxieties, such as rituals of everyday life or social activities. In a blow to collective narcissism, it undermined our omnipotent fantasies developed through identification with cultural and technological progress. At times of turmoil, thinking itself might be experienced as contaminating. We may fear that getting in touch with what is painful might infect the healthy part of us too. And so we often unconsciously evacuate thinking into someone else or some action plan. Psychoanalysis invites us to restore spaces for clear thinking, to stay with uncertainty a little longer and notice its different colours and roles in our lives. We might develop complex defences against uncertainty, but doubt might also help us isolate ourselves from feared aspects of reality. Uncertainty might be a wall separating us from our dreams, but it is also the space in our minds into which we throw wooden reels all the time. During a walking interview in a garden, grilled on questions on life and death, Freud was making frequent stops to tenderly caress a blooming bush or smell a flower. He pleaded with the journalist not to make him look like a pessimist because he didn't feel like one. Seventy years have taught me to accept life with cheerful humility. I am not a pessimist. I permit no philosophic reflection to spoil my enjoyment of the simple things of life. I'm far more interested in this blossom than in anything that may happen to me after I'm dead. These words equal some of those from his beautiful essay on transience published over a decade earlier, in the middle of the war. And I would like to warmly recommend it to all our listeners. In it, faced with the world's catastrophe, Freud surprises us with expressions of radical hope. He disputes the pessimistic view that the transience of things involves any loss in their worth, insisting that Limitation in the possibility of an enjoyment raises the value of the enjoyment. That the thought of transience of beauty should not interfere with our joy in it. He brings the beauty of nature as an example. Each time it is destroyed by winter, it comes again next year. So, in relation to the length of our lives, it can in fact be regarded as eternal. 
We make ourselves vulnerable by forming attachments to people, things or ideas. But, he says, those ready to make a permanent renunciation because what was precious has proved not to be lasting are simply in a state of mourning for what is lost. Mourning, as we know, however painful it might be, comes to a spontaneous end. In other words, it's transient too. The Fortida baby, Freud's grandson W. Ernest, first played with the wooden reel, throwing it out and bringing it back again. As a troubled and lonely teenager, he consoled himself by playing a game in which he tied a string to a wooden reel, attached a hook to the reel, and lowered it off his balcony into a rubbish heap to fish for treasures. And in his final years, he engaged in what he called unspooling, asking others, notably Daniel Benvenisti, to pick up what he was no longer able to pull himself, publish final papers and work in his biography. Throughout the pandemic, many people have been going back to the moments in their past when the worlds were falling apart. But just when it might seem that psychoanalysis is in the business of telling us that we live in the past, it tells us that we also throw our hooks into the future, constantly fishing for treasures there. As individual tragedies of this pandemic have unfolded against the backdrop of social inequality and the moral injury of racism, so many have also exercised loving, reparative impulses in extraordinary acts of kindness generosity and creativity. Human nature, continuously emerging from the tension between the life and death drives, has once again demonstrated its astonishing capacity for both good and evil. So, as the impact of the pandemic on our inner life is yet to be fully grasped, Tom, I think that Freud's wartime writings and transients really resonate like an uncanny echo. It is to be hoped that once the morning is over, it will be found that our high opinion of the riches of civilization has lost nothing from our discovery of their fragility. We shall build up again, and perhaps on firmer ground, and more lastingly than before. Thank you, Amelia. That, that's a very moving and fitting way to end our first podcast series Freud in Focus. This podcast series was presented by Jamie Ruiz and me, Tom DeRose, and produced by Carolina Heller. I'd like to thank our guests, Amelia and Bryony, who have joined us over the last two episodes, and all of our listeners. Thank you for your feedback, and please do remember to continue to contribute to the conversation through our website, www.freud.org.uk and via our social media channels. Now the museum is hoping, is hoping to open its doors again to the public on Wednesday the 19th of May. So please do come and see us if you can. We'll also be opening our new exhibition, Freud and Pandemic 1920-2020, which will focus on some of the themes that we've been discussing throughout this podcast series. 
If you have enjoyed this podcast series and feel that you would like to donate to the Freud Museum, then you can do so through our website. We will be launching a second series of our podcast, Freud in Focus, in the summer. Until then, take great care.